Dr. Shola Moss Shogbamimu, it is a real delight to have you on my podcast, 20 Questions With. You are an activist, you're a political commentator, you're an author, you're a lawyer. Tell us which part of your working life you spend most time on and why it matters to you so much. Hey, Matt, thank you for having me. Okay, so there is no one part of my life that I think sums me more up than the other or that I spend more time on. It just doesn't work like that. I'm fond of saying that when I came out of my mother, I was probably screaming about God knows what. I think the reality for me, especially as I've gotten older, is that I've learned to accept that there are different facets of my life and that they intersect interconnect in ways that I don't necessarily want to change or control because this is who I am. So you see all of those things you mentioned, you've not added mother, you've not added all of, uh, you know, so many other things that fill up my day and fill up my existence. So I am all of those things and a whole lot more. That's what I would say. Do you enjoy the spotlight? Because you are known by many, some would call you a controversialist, others would say you're just speaking the truth, or you're speaking true to power, or you're calling out white privilege. But you are quite often in the spotlight, because you appear on high profile television shows, and you make your views absolutely crystal clear. Do you enjoy that? I don't think the word enjoy is the right word. I think that I understand that the spotlight, whatever that shape, or whatever shape it takes, comes with a territory when you do what I do, which is I am not going to be held back on speaking truth to power or saying it as it is. I shrugged off people's perception of me a long time ago. I am such free, please Lord. And um, the reality is I don't think that I am controversial. I think the truth is controversial. It just happens to come out of my God-given mouth. And then I don't give a rat's ass that people are upset that it's coming out of my God-given mouth. I think that's the thing. Do you believe in God? Oh, absolutely. Oh my God, Matt. Um, the Lord God is my everything. I mean, let, let me put it this way. I don't do religion. I, I have a relationship with God. So the same way I have a conversation with you is how I have a conversation with my father. I'm like, morning, Lord. And, you know, I sometimes I feel as though when I'm having conversations with God, God goes, is that Shola again? What has happened now? What has happened now? Did she receive the package we sent? Did she see the answer I sent to her? Or was she looking left instead of looking right? So you, you, angel, go down, go help my child, sort her out, sort everything out for her, let her be fine. You know, that's the kind of relationship I have with God. I believe in who the Lord is and who I am in him. As I said, I don't do religion. My my entire existence and um, I would say whatever strength I have is rooted in my faith. And it's because of God that I can believe in myself because I see myself through him rather than through, I don't know, the way other people see me. How strong have you had to be being a black woman in Britain? Black women experience not just what every other woman experiences in, in terms of misogyny, sexism, and other kinds of barriers. But on top of that are the outside the endemic institutional structural barriers that face us because we are black and because we're women. And so how strong have I had to be? You know, I, I just I just mentioned earlier about my faith in God. My strength comes from God. I do not think we have a choice. We don't have a choice but to be strong because if you're not strong, you're not going to be able to survive and you need to survive to thrive. And I want to thrive, not just survive. So just as much as we face the same kind of issues that white, brown women will experience, on top of that, we experience a whole lot of, um, I will say a whole lot of other institutional barriers, especially dark-skinned women like me. 
And these things speak out in our education, so in our school system, in employment, in day-to-day -day, uh, lived experiences. So when you ask how, how strong ever I had to be, I think it's not just me, it's just black women generally, and in Britain particularly, because we, we still, um, I would say, because Britain is still very much an institutionally racist, misogynistic, sexist country, yeah, multiply all that by tenfold. That's what we have to deal with on a daily basis. So when the Black Lives Matter movement hit the headlines in a really big way in this country in 2020, it might have surprised some people. It might have surprised some well-intentioned people who thought that, broadly speaking, we've moved on as a country, that we're no longer a racist country. What do you say to those people? What the heck have you been? I'm really not surprised that there were a number of people that were taken by surprise. And, and those who were taken by surprise demographically were white, okay? And um, clearly they've not been paying attention. And I, I suppose there'll be an argument to say that, look, how, how could they possibly know when even in the media, the media does not talk about what is happening to black communities as they ought to. Don't, um, and the media is very much part of negatively stereotyping black people. So maybe for some people, this is a shock, but this is nonsense. This is nonsense because when we talk about racism, be it overt or covert, you see this every single day. You, we see it. You see it in the shops. You see it in schools. You see it on the high street. The fact that some people won't go, oh, well, that wasn't racism. He was just being a bully. That wasn't racism. She was just being mean. No, that was racism. You don't, this is a problem with white privilege. It does not call what ought to be called racism by its given name. It gives it every other name than what it is. So what, what I find is that in, in our country, United Kingdom, what has been done so well is to dull, right? Make people dumber than they ought to when it comes to the lived experiences of marginalized communities in this country. We continue to make excuses. We continue to turn a blind eye. And then when people like me come along and say, this is what is happening, they're like, mm, she's so anti-white. No, I'm not anti-white. I'm telling you, this is what is happening. And it is white people that perpetuate this. And it's made worse because we're talking about white supremacy. Every single thing you we talk about when we talk about racism stems from white supremacy. And who does white supremacy benefit? Oh, that nasty, nasty Dr. Shola. She just doesn't like white people. No, that's not the case. I'm telling you, this is the problem. And if you want to eradicate white supremacy, you need to tackle it at its root. And I then have to go, you know, take the extra time to go. We know that not all white people are racist, for goodness sake. I mean, white, white people who also gave up their lives and liberty, you know, to fight white supremacy. Who doesn't know that? Well, I know that. And, and I know it, it's right to also remind people of that. But the fact that there are people in this country that still expect me and others like me to have a nice, calm conversation about racism over a nice cup of tea and ginger nut biscuit when there is nothing calm about systemic racism. That, that's just genuinely irritates me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you've said before, Shola, that it's not the job of people of colour to educate white people about racism. White Ed people should go and educate themselves. Amen, amen, amen. So, yes, yes, go on, go, so go, we'll go just, But having said that, yes. what, do, what do the people who still... Okay, so you have people who, who, who enjoy being racist, who know they're racist, want to be racist, 
Right. And that's 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 a that's a tricky a tricky person to try to turn around. Not impossible, but tricky. But for the people who don't really realize it, for the people that you're talking to, the people who you want to get it who still don't get it. Yeah. Even though you say it's not for you, not for people of color to, to educate them. Yeah. Constructively, what should they do? Where where do they go and educate themselves? Or is it about is it about education in schools? Is it about parent what's it parenting? What's it about? I think it's about everything. So when you hear me make that statement, or sometimes you hear the irritation in my voice when I go, for goodness sake, right? I know the difference between those who are racist and don't want to hear, and they just want, they want to fight those who are trying to change the status quo because the status quo suits them. I, I know those people. I get that. I get that. Now, those who are like, okay, I really would like to know more, but I don't know. Or, oh, really, is that the case? And then they move on right? Without actually trying to unpick their learning. This is where part of the, I think the struggle comes in because those people on this other side who are, who are going, well, no, I don't really know. Okay. Can we have a conversation about it? The problem, Matt, is that there is an expectation that it is on us, black people, brown people to then unpick their learning. I'm saying no, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it as loudly as I can, because people think that due to the fact that we live in a polite society, that the politeness of our society should then encumber me with more pressure and more burden when I'm already carrying enough burden as it is in trying to dismantle the very things that are affecting people like me. So when I come across my white brothers and sisters and uh, non-binary, of course, who then want to engage in conversation, but their, their, their engagement in conversation comes with arrogance and ignorance. I shut them down at the door with their arrogance and ignorance because don't come at me unless you're ready. And then those who then say, okay, let's have a conversation, but shall I just feel so bullied? Um, look at the way you're speaking to me. I, I just can't handle it. You're so, oh, I don't know. It's just so domineering. Okay. First of all, this is me. And I'm when I speak about something I'm passionate about, I am not going to sit here caring about how you feel because you don't give a rat's ass about how I feel. And we have a conversation. Now, this is what they're not used to. They expect that politeness means we have to speak a certain way to make them feel comfortable about racism. And that in itself is racist. Explain to us, Shola, how important it is that we as a country learn about the horrors of our past as well as the things that we can be proud of. I think it is possible to do both. We have no choice but to do both. But the problem is that our history, our British history has been so whitewashed with lies, blatant lies and deliberate lies in order to go, well, you know, we just went to these countries, these countries on continents that lacked civilization and lacked um, religion. And we brought them to the Lord <laughs> and we brought them commerce. We brought them civilization of all kinds. Without us, there'll be no libraries in countries in Africa. We had libraries in Africa before you could spell libraries. Okay, people. But no, because they have done such damage, it is clear that even in schools here till today, Matt, Till today, we have children in schools that think that Africa is a country when it's a continent. Mm? There are people in this country who will take a whole lot of people, right? Because remember, when we say Black and we say Africans, they just literally throw all of us together. We know it's all part of stereotype. But they do not take the time 
to understand, okay, why did we do what we did as British people um, when we went into these countries? We stole from them, pillaged, we we raped, quite frankly, we raped the, the humans in the country, we raped the natural resources in the country, we took from them, but yet we point fingers at them and go, be grateful. Why is it that today, even today in 2022, we still have conversations around and narratives that will look at somebody like me and go, you better be grateful for everything this country has done for you. But then they'll look at you, Matt, but not give you the same narrative. Why is that? Even though I was born in this country, East London, Hackney, no less. Yes, brilliant Hackney. But, but they don't give you that kind of narrative. Why is that the case? Well, why should I, as a British citizen, British-born citizen, have to wake up each morning going, I'm so grateful, when you can get up entitled so they don't like the fact that when I get up every morning, Matt, I wake up entitled because this is my country. Those are my streets. The sun shines here just for me as much as it shines for you. And they're like, she doesn't have the mentality that we are. And this is because we are not taking the time to understand our past, both the glory and the atrocities that was, you know, that were committed in our name. And we continue to allow um, we continue to allow these, I would call historical amnesia to exist because our country does not want to take accountability, doesn't want to be held accountable. And this generation even more, you have people, why should we be apologizing? Because you are benefiting from it and because it was wrong. So say sorry. How much progress is there still to be made, do you think, on issues of sexism and misogyny, on the way society treats women in Britain? Clearly, we're ahead of many countries and the situation for women in other countries, I'm thinking, for example, certain countries in the Middle East, but elsewhere too, is much more egregious. But how much, how much more progress in Britain have we got to make? I think we've got a whole lot more progress to make. And I think it's disingenuous whenever we compare ourselves to countries like, um, I don't know, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, because we know that it is their religion that rules and determines how women are treated. We, ha we don't even have that excuse. We don't have the excuse of religion. We have, there's no reason on God's earth why women are still treated as second-class citizens in the United Kingdom or in the United States of America, but let's talk about the UK. There, there is no reason why women are still fighting for rights that men automatically have. There's no reason why when a female entrepreneur wants to start business, that there are less women getting capital to start their business than men. There's no reason why we have more men on I know boards of you know FTSE 100 companies than women. There is no reason why we have the gender pay gap. There's, that makes sense. Nothing, except for the fact that our country is still um, entrenched in sexism and misogyny and all of the structural barriers. We see it in our politics. And please, before anybody goes, but we've had three female prime ministers. Yeah. And how did that go for you? How did that go for us? I mean, look at the last one. Don't get me started on Liz Truss. My point is this. Um, people like to use, for instance, the queen. As an example, that Queen Elizabeth, she was the head of state. And then I go, well, how many women, white, black, and brown, could look at Queen Elizabeth and go, that could be me one day? None. Definitely no black or brown child could look at Queen Elizabeth and go, one day I'm going to be the Queen of England. It's not going to happen. So the reason why we're still where we are at is because nothing is changing as quickly as it ought to. And we should stop looking at other countries and going, let's pat ourselves on the back. We're better. No, actually, we're not because we don't have the excuse there's no excuse or justification for why we're still where we're at. 100 years ago, 
We only got the right to vote 100 years ago. When the Queen died, a lot of people grieved in this country and and beyond. But for some people, it seemed to be a triggering event and it brought up the pain of empire and colonialism. How do you see the British monarchy? Uh, That's an excellent question, Matt. How do I see the British monarchy? First of all, I don't think you're right when you say that her death triggered a, a certain point of view to come out because, you see, those already existed, but people were not listening. Do you see the difference? It's not like she died and also people will come and go, oh, this is how I'm feeling. No, they were feeling this way, but nobody was the listening. And it was only when she died and their voices, they had to force their voices to be heard. That people were like, oh, I'm shocked. How could you possibly say that about the queen? After all she did, her duty. And yeah, people were like, yeah, it is her duty. And what she did in her duty or lack thereof that people are talking about and feeling pain about. The question for me when I think about the British monarchy is, first of all, if we're going to still have a monarchy, that's very much up to the people. Secondly, please somebody point me to the relevance of the British monarchy today, because I am struggling and struggling to understand why we have a system that places people right at the top and then we cannot hold them to account. Let me think about it. They don't present to us as to why they should remain in power because they are in power. People go, oh, it's ceremonial nonsense. That's absolute rubbish. There's nothing ceremonial about the power or position of the royal family. They don't come to us and explain or are held to account. How do you have somebody or anybody at such a top position and you can't hold them to account? What utter nonsense is that? And then that what is happening at the top of the royal family is reflected in our politics, in the very people that we elect to power. There's just this whole system, it's not making sense. So if there's a way for the British monarchy to be able to say, this is why you need me, and we're relevant because ABC, I really would love to hear it, so I can then deconstruct it. What sort of shape do you think the United States of America is at the moment? I was there covering the 2008 election of Barack Obama for the BBC. Since then, we've had Donald Trump. Where is America at the moment? A cesspit. That's my answer. You wanted me to give you short and sweet, right? I'm just giving you one. Cesspit. That's exactly where I think America is at right now. On every single level, politically, socially, culturally, economically, cesspit. Pit. I mean, whether it's Roe v. Wade or the uh, or the or the issue of how they treat immigration or Islamophobia, I mean, that, it is just rife with such um, divisive rhetoric that yes, it's been driven by the right, and I mean, Trump and Trumpism and MAGA might be the face on it, but the reality is that it was always there, bubbling under the surface. And then you have people like the Democrats and the Independents who want to appear to be. Um, you know, proper and polite in the face of all of this chaos. That's not going to work. You have to fight fire with fire, my people. You don't go, somebody's being really nasty. They're punching the vulnerable in the face. And all we're going to go is, they're there. That's not the right thing to do. You better take that punch out of that person's face. Instead of standing there like nothing's happening. Is racism a bigger problem, do you think, in 2022 in America or Britain? It's both. They're equal. One is not bigger than the other. And I think that people, especially in this country, really need to stop thinking that things are worse when it comes to racism in America, simply because, oh, look at the police brutality. We've got police brutality here. Look at um, the cases of discrimination. It's just it's just as bad, if not worse. Let me tell you what the British do really well. <laughs> Let me tell you what we do so well, right? We have the ability to discriminate 
deny people of an equal value of life and liberty while putting a cold smile on our faces. And that smile doesn't reach our eyes. Whereas in America, yeah, they might have angry faces, but it is the same thing and the same impact. This is why we need to work harder together to eradicate this evil. Shola, how do you see yourself? You're born in Hackney, you're British, mm-hmm. you've got Nigerian roots. How do you identify? Well, I identify as Shola. And on top of that, I identify as a woman, as a mother, I identify as somebody who loves dancing, who loves food, I love reading, Um, I identify as somebody who has, who's accepted that I, when I don't like something, I'm going to do my damnest to make sure it changes. Oh, And if it doesn't change in my lifetime, the world will know that Shola doesn't like it. And for me, there is no full stop after my name. There are loads of commas. And some of these commas, I don't even know what they are yet, but Lord, keep them coming. So I can't tell you all of who I am, but I can tell you there's a lot of stuff that sums me up. And the way I identify on any given day, that's for you to sit back, watch and observe. How important is your Nigerian heritage and how does it manifest itself in your life, in your experience of being you? Uh, my Nigerian heritage is as important to me as my, I would say, my Britishness. I'm African from the roots of my hair to the soles of my feet. I am proud of my African heritage. I'm proud to be Yoruba. And for me, I live an existence, and I'm grateful to God for that, where I don't have to choose one or the other. And that's because there are people on whose shoulders I stand on who fought for me to have the right today to live my life as fully and wholesomely as I am, Yoruba and Hackney born. You see what I mean? And being British and everything that that means. And the fact that, and I know that it bothers some people when they see that I speak out against a lot of things I find wrong in our country. And they go, oh, you don't like anything about our country. I'm like, look, this is like a family, okay? I can get ticked off at my brother. Does not mean I hate my brother. It means this is a problem, it needs to be fixed. And I expect you to do the same with me. If you think there's something I can do better or I can be better, you say so. That does not mean I hate you. I need you to unpack something for me, please. So you just said that you're African to the roots of your being. But you also said earlier, rightly, that it's completely wrong when people think that Africa is a country, not a continent. Correct. So so just unpack that for us, because you're not just of Nigerian heritage. You feel part of your identity is African. Correct. So when I say Africa, context matters. Yes, context determines content. So when I when I say I am African, it's like you referring to yourself as European, okay? Even though you are British. And then you break it down from being British to the specific country in the UK you're from. And being of African heritage, I think it speaks to a much broader scope of how Black people are spoken of. So whether you're African-American, Afro-Caribbean, it all goes back to being African. So I say I'm of African heritage. I'm of Nigerian heritage. I am Yoruba. So I'm taking you straight down to my roots, which is Yoruba. At the same time, I am British. I'm, oh, let me start. I'm European. I'm British. I'm born in England. Born in England. So not, not Scotland, nor Wales. So th- th- this is a way of going... Okay, let's 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 trickle down to where your roots really start and what what helps to make you who are, who you are. But in all of these things that I've said, understand that the very essence of me 
that dominates all of these other identities is my faith. Long and short. First and foremost, child of God. That's it. People, please. Child of the living God. <laughs> and that frames everything else. This doesn't count as a question. It's just a clarification. What is Yoruba? So Yoruba, <laughs> the Yoruba is a nation of people. Within and Nigeria. And not just within Nigeria. You say, oh, okay, let me let me take you back to school, Matt. Let me take you back to school. So you see, before the British decided to um, <clears throat> come to our side of Africa, West Africa, there were Yoruba kingdoms, okay? And there are lots of Yoruba people all over the world today, partly, mostly because of the slave trade. So you'll find Yoruba cultures in Brazil, for instance, in, you know, in Latin America, in the United States of America, in different parts of the world. The Western powers that be decided to go into a continent that they had no business being in, and they carved it up amongst themselves and decided to create countries, throwing people together that had lived autonomously, independently, as kingdoms. So today, when um, colonization talks about people like the Yorubas and Hausas and the Fulanese, they refer to them as tribes. Can you imagine the caucasity? Do you know there are more Yorubas? More Yorubas than they are in certain countries in, in the Western world. But you refer to them as tribes? Nah, they're nations. Nations. Is it true, Shona, that you have royalty in your blood, that one of your ancestors was a king? My my grandfather. Tell us about your grandfather. Oh, that's, that's an excellent question. I mean, he passed away when I was young, actually. Um, this was in the in the early 80s. He was, was he 85 or so? And um, he he was born in then Nigeria, just after uh, the British had colonized Nigeria. But, you know, before they officially colonized, they were already there doing their business of raping the country, yada, yada. You know all that, right? And um, so he was he was king of his, how would I describe, um, the vicinity, which is one of the small kingdoms in Yoruba land, because we have a number of kingdoms. And until he died, until he died. I think he actually, he also met the queen when she came to visit in 19, I think 50 something, I can't remember. <laughs> Sum up where you've spent your life, because you've got all sorts of different influences on you, Shola. And you're an attorney, I believe, in America, but you're also a solicitor in Britain. Yes. Can you talk us through that very briefly so we understand better your background? Okay, so my my background as a as a lawyer, that's my profession. I'm a qualified New York attorney, which means I can practice in the state of New York. Um, I'm also a qualified solicitor of England and Wales, which means, of course, I can practice as a solicitor here. And I made the decision to be to be able to, you know, qualify in these jurisdictions because, you know, both I would say the UK and New York especially, are uh, very vibrant commercial centers, right? centers, right? So somebody like me with a commercial and corporate background, specializing in financial services law, that is exactly, you know, my bread and butter. I could have chosen to do the California bar, but I prefer New York. I like New York a lot. Um, it reminds me of Lagos. It's very, you know, the attitude, the character is, is just, it's like, it's like you're back in Lagos. People tell you exactly what you're thinking. There's no need to be overly polite about anything. And, and so that's what I've enjoyed. I've enjoyed doing during my, you know, professional career. 
I'm going to ask you about the elephant in the room, which is the book. This is why I resist. And there's is it a, an elephant for, in the room. <laughs> for, the, for those Shona who are listening to this podcast, there's a copy of two copies of the hardback on your mantelpiece behind you, and there's one copy of the paperback. I'll ask yes. you about that, but first, I want to find out a little bit more about you. What do you do to have fun? Oh, that's an excellent question. Finally, let's see. I love to eat. Food and I have such a special relationship. You have no idea. In fact, some of my best, not arguments, I don't argue, I discuss. <laughs> I best had while Shola is feeding her face and feeding her belly. My husband actually calls my belly the beast. He says so many things go in there that you don't recognize by the time you're done with it. You look at my plate, it's all empty. I love reading. I love dancing. I do a lot of dancing, my own private dancing. I, I don't mind showing the world, but my kids think <laughs> that I might embarrass them. So, hey, oh, I do love having a, um, you know, a good conversation with people where it's just filled with laughter. And let's see, what else do I like? I like cooking sometimes, but I prefer to eat what other people have cooked. And I love traveling. I love traveling and visiting new places. I love finding out about new cultures. I just got back from Japan. I mean, I've been to Japan before, but this time we did like a number of cities and it was just brilliant. It was so wonderful and that the culture is just awesome. You mentioned your cooking. Do you have some special skills that we should know about? What What are you secretly talented at that we might not know if we're watching you on TV talking about the issue of the day? Spicy food. Look, my food has to have character, Matt. All right, none of that bland nonsense. When you eat something I cooked, you know, your belly knows it has become acquainted with something with personality, okay? That is what food should taste like, not, oh my God, have I eaten can you imagine? Or, um, so let's see. I, I love seafood. Seafood is just one of my favorite things. I love fish. I love all kinds of, and usually when I do like, um, I might do like a steamed fish with stir fry. I throw in all kinds of stuff in there, you know, squids and all kinds of things make it really whew, a pate. That's right. And preferably I like to eat it all by myself. Okay. People that doesn't mean I'm selfish. I don't selfish. It just means I'm looking after myself. Thank you very much. And something else, my favorite chocolates, my absolute favorite chocolates in the entire world are Cadbury Eclairs chocolates. You know, those, those really sweet ones with the car caramel inside. Oh my God. Oh my God. I can't help myself. Let me tell you how, how hooked I am on them. I go through a packet, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, really. It just goes through, just goes through. And I do not share them with my children. I buy them everything else. Why must they have this one? Oh, mommy, what's that in your mouth? How, how is it your business? Go and, go and eat your own. <laughs> Describe to us your sense of style or fashion. God, well, my kids would say I don't have any. I beg to differ. I'm very lazy. I'll be honest with you when it comes to fashion. I'm very lazy when it comes to style. Sometimes my husband goes, no, no, no. You're not going out. It was jogging bottoms again, and that's sweating. Can you just change it to something else? But because I'm feeling lazy, I can't even be bothered to go change. And then I roll my eyes and go, fine. I throw something on. He said, look, isn't it? look, the effort matters. Or for instance, when I'm doing like TV interviews and it's a virtual thing, I'm like, great, I only need to worry about the top. I can't be bothered with the bottom. But the thing I find though is when I do get dressed, I do enjoy, I, I, I love having colors that contrast. And if I get the jewelry right, the accessories right, I'm like, oh, okay, we're looking good, we're looking good. But the moment I'm done 
whether it's an event or a TV interview or anything, the first thing I want to do is throw everything off. That's just like the first thought in my head. I want to get rid of the makeup. I become like, um, did you ever watch The Naughty Professor? No. Eddie Murphy, The Naughty Professor. He, you know, he kind of wears like, uh, he's this big fat um, professor. Okay, okay. I become like the naughty professor when I get home because everything comes tumbling out, right? And let the real Shola stand up. Free at last, free at last. So that that's where that's what I'll describe as my my style. Lazy. Okay, we're almost done. You're almost free, Shola. Woo! Final question. <laughs> Tell me. Why did you write This Is Why I Resist? And mm. not just why did you write it, but why should people read it? Okay, so This Is Why I Resist for me was... Uh, is is an outlet of responding to a lot of the conversations we're having in real time but we are not giving enough time to discuss so you and i even though we have a number of questions to talk about you know on your show we're able to get to a little bit of it but you know as i know that when you do radio interviews tv interviews there's not any time for nuance or real context See, and so I wanted to delve into some of this everyday narratives and tear it up. I want, and, and that's what I do through the, you know, in the book. I want it to be as I want people when they read the book to go, oh my God, I can hear your voice. And, and the amazing thing is that when people read the book, they tell me, actually, we can hear your voice when we read the book. Because I want people to, to feel like they're having a conversation with me as we're tackling a number of these issues. So, oh, what is white privilege and the conversations around white privilege? This is, this book is not an academic book. This book is a conversational book. This is this is a book where I'm going, excuse you, what did you just say? Okay, let me tell you what, that's what this book is like. I mean, there'll be aspects of the book that you, you might disagree with, and that is fine. Even my husband doesn't agree with 50% of what I think, and I've not divorced him yet. So I'm not going to say I get angry with you simply because you don't agree with me. There are going to be parts of this book where you're probably laughing your head off, but I deal and I tackle with really deeply serious issues. I remember writing, I think it was chapter three where, where, where I write about, we can't breathe. Yeah, I think it's chapter three. And I needed to pause because it was while I was writing this book, Matt, that I realized that I came to the understanding that I had internalized a lot and I didn't even know it. Then I was thinking, okay, we're just moving, we're moving, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I'd not taken the time to debrief, to deconstruct, what I have personally internalized in terms of struggle, in terms of understanding, in terms of unpicking my own learning. And there were days that when I was writing, I just went, okay, let's take a pause, switch on Netflix. Where's the ice cream? Where are my ginger nut biscuits? Let's just breathe and then come back in. Um, because sometimes it's easy for people to go, oh, Matt is a very strong guy. He's very, you know, strongly opinionated. You can't just say whatever you want to Matt and get away with it. It doesn't work that way. Without people realizing that Matt is human too. And Matt also has moments where he goes, okay, I need, I just need to pause and I need to take care of, I need to take care of my heart. And that, this for me was almost, this book was almost therapeutic. And of course I challenge, I mean, the, the last chapter there, I say, okay, when will white people progress? Look, I say it as it is, people. If you're looking for a book that will make you comfortable, <laughs> this is not it too, okay? If you want a book that's going to challenge you, make you ask more questions, make you go, oh, I didn't even see it from that perspective, then this, you please feel free to read the book, but don't think for one second that you may necessarily come out of the book going, oh, everything she said, um, you know, that's it. I, I, I never want to have this conversation. 
you may agree, you may disagree, that's okay. You may learn something new, you might not learn something new. Again, that's okay. But you want to have a real conversation with somebody who's not going to give a rat's ass how you feel? Talk to me. Dr. Shailen Moshogramimu, it's been amazing to have you on 20 Questions with you. Have not disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Oh, God, I know. And I was talking so much and I didn't try to keep the time. Forgive me. Forgive me. This mouth of mine. Mm, mm. We would, we'll try to do better. Actually, forget that. I am too old now to change to, oh, just give succinct answers. But, but I did do well when you asked me that question. I just went cesspit. That's the short <laughs> answer I, don't think, I, think I, have, I think I've ever given in my entire life. <laughs> Shayla, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.